Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to another edition of Children of Song, the podcast that explores what it must have been like to grow up surrounded by music. For those of you listening for the first time, we are speaking with artists whose parents made it big in the music or entertainment industries, or in today's case, someone who came from a musical family but also performed on the professional stage at a very early age. In what we're calling our Broadway sessions, today we have the pleasure of being in the presence of one of the American theater's most dynamic stars. He may be short in stature, but he has a very tall body of work. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Just be careful. I'm I'm sensitive. I didn't write that bit. Uh, He is not at all short in stature, but he has a very tall body of work that spans almost seven decades. We'll meet him in a moment, but first, well, we have met him, in fact. Uh, But first, I'm Charles Isherwood, and I'll be your host for this journey along the Great White Way. I'm joined by my producer, Brad Newman. Hello, Brad. Hi, Charles. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? You know, I'm excited about today because uh, we've got a fellow Ohioan with us in the studio. You know, I I grew up 45 minutes from Cleveland, and so you think that counts? It really doesn't. It really doesn't. (laughs) I know it doesn't because I grew up there. I know how far away it was. It could have been New York City. I mean, you know, but let me tell you. We are talking about with a a former child actor. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, child actors do kind of get, you know, kind of a bad name thrown at them because sometimes it's very difficult for them to transition into their adult careers. But one thing I was thinking is that as a child, and I don't know, he may not agree with this. Um, I did a little acting as a child, and I wasn't anything what this young, young man was next to us. But I'll tell you, you can perfect the art a little bit because you kind of get it quicker. You kind of understand what a button is. You play with the audience a little bit more, and you kind of understand that a flick or a gesture here is going to make them pop. And I think as an adult, they don't really play like that. But- I, also, when you're an adult, you're afraid, and you're fearless when it's brand new and you have no idea what's out there. That's true. <laughs> That's true. So, you, you know, anyways, they, they call them plays for a reason. And I think children really kind of get that concept innately better than the adults do. So, you know, it, it led to a 70-year career. So here we go. Well, I was never a, an actor as a child, except I, I gave up after first grade, in fact, uh, which is wise, I'm sure. Um, Very. <laughs> thank you, Brad. You're here to help me stay on the uh, Straight and narrow. Rick Buser is our engineer, and we are bringing this to you from our podcast studios in Midtown Manhattan, just steps away from the heart of Broadway in New York. And as you may have guessed, sitting with us in the studio today is an actor who is best known for his role as the MC in Cabaret, a part that earned him a Tony, an Oscar, and a Golden Globe. He's had an amazing career in film, television, and the theater, of course. Uh, got four Tony nominations, a very versatile performer. Uh, we want to welcome Joel Gray to the podcast. Delighted. Okay, let's get right to it, Joel. Um, you know, everyone kind of knows you 
for that iconic role, the MC. But many may not know that you have this incredibly interesting and varied career beginning very young. You were born into a showbiz family to a father who became a celebrated cl clarinet player, but he was also a great comic and he was, became quite famous for uh, Yiddish parodies of popular songs. Can you tell us a little about Mickey Katz and uh, what was he like? He was hilarious, first of all, and sweet and gentle and kind, and he loved to play the clarinet, mm. and he loved musicians, so he had a whole world. When he had a band, he couldn't have been happier than being on stage with a bunch of other musicians. And for some reason, he was also a writer, and he started to write parodies of American hit songs, and they became successful. And... Uh, they were recorded. As a matter of fact, he was, he was in a recording session. He was in Spike Jones' orchestra. Mm. And he was the one who went, <laughs> yes. Uh, and he was reading, he always wrote Yiddish parodies of songs. And he was, he had written something that night. And he was talking to one of the other musicians on a break. And everybody else was out, and he was singing this song. And uh, he didn't know that the, the microphone was open. Ah, a classic story. <laughs> right. And they were all Gentile gentlemen. Gentlemen. <laughs> uh, the heads of, this, of Capitol Records. And they had no idea what he was saying except they were laughing hysterically because the sounds were funny. Yiddish is a very funny language, especially, even when you don't understand it. Clearly. Yeah, especially when you mix it up with English. Well, and yeah. he was, they're very, very clever. Um, to give people just a, a little taste of this, because um, I think this is quite hilarious myself, here's a, a little ditty he liked to call 16 Tons of Lockies. Oh, I went to work in a delicatessen For 30 to learn, plenty to fressen The ballebus promised me a real gedile Instead of gedile, I catched me a killer You load 16 tons of hard salami Come before old beef and hot pastrami I hock around everything in Suessen to the delicatessen. Ah, oh, it's amazing. So funny, right? Very. I mean, he, you really think that he, in his day, he was sort of like a Weird Al Yankovic. Exactly. And I think Yankovic was uh, kind of a, a fan, too. Oh, I'm sure well, he was a huge, great. huge fan. My father's first record, this one that, that he was singing to his friend, was, I mean, what else would he do but pick a classic American song. Oi get me rahim, mit a vibele shame, for the sheeps and the tigalach leifen. Oi get me rahoys, mit gesunte cowboys, on a couple hundred cattle to fakafen. <laughs> now, I ask you, the reason I think his 
impetus without even knowing it. It was in some way to to help people who came from the old country feel like they belonged. So he mixed up all of the big hit songs and made them into Yiddishisms so that they could be seen as equally amusing. Right. Right. He gave a subculture a connection to the greater culture. Yeah. I mean, through entertainment, without you know making any grand statements about it. it I don't think he ever said anything right like that about it. Or or I'm not so certain he even knew of the social importance. But but to give it some context, real quick. I mean, this is going on here in in the early '50s. He's coming up with these, right? Uh, right. Late '40s. Right. And this is after World War II. I mean. You know, obviously, some of this music had sort of a mixed reaction with people, didn't it, too? I mean, I find such joy in his music. I, I, I laugh immediately. I don't know how anybody could take that the wrong way. And yet, from what I read, he found and ran into radio stations that wouldn't play the music. Yes, because they were usually uh, run by guys who were afraid that... They wouldn't be American if if they didn't stand up and say, he's taking advantage of the American songs. And uh, I think his, uh, it was very courageous that he kept at it and told those guys they're full of shit. Yeah, and of course these debates still rage today, you know, who is an American and, you know, how do you become more American? What does it even mean, for goodness sake? Mm-hmm. Um, so he was a huge influence in your life, obviously. Um, eventually, you started, you know, performing with him. Um, but let's go back just for a little bit because your career even begins much earlier. Oh, yeah. My career doesn't begin with my father. Yeah. That was something I did just to get on the stage because I couldn't get a job. But at age nine, you did have a job at, of sorts. At age nine, I was ushered into a classical theater called the Cleveland Playhouse that was, oh, well, it's 100 years old this year. Mm. And it was like the finest, most committed, most loving actors who did uh, uh, comedies and tragedies. It was more uh, uh, on the level of the English... Uh, Classical repertory repertory. Yeah. And... I walked in and found out I was an equal player, even though I was nine years old. Wow. I was treated like an adult, as long as I knew my lines, and as long as I was on time, and as long as I was quiet. And I loved it so much. I was so easy to manage all of those, Mm. you know expectations. But who introduced you to the playhouse? Was did, did dad hear about something through someone in in because really they don't overlap that much. I mean, he was a oh, no, musician. My, my father had nothing to do with this. This was my mother's notion. Ah. My mother <laughs> had these illusions about being an actress. And um, Ah, yes, that story. <laughs> yes, remember them? Uh and she took me to the playhouse to see a children's theater production of a group of the Playhouse people called uh, the Curtain Pullers. 
And I sat in the theater, and the curtain went up, and I looked, and in the quiet of the dark, I remember even to this day whispering to my mother, I want to do that. Mm. Uh, and she facilitated. Yes, yeah, she was very happy to because she wasn't doing very well on the performing end. Mm. So vicariously, she was. She now had some clay to mold. Exactly. Uh, that's wonderful and, you know, complicated at the same time. Right. So you were on stage at age nine, and, um, you know, did you ever feel like— Never happier in my life. Okay, you just answer my question, because, you know, some people might think, you know, this poor child performing from age nine, but for you, that was the ideal Oh, my childhood. God, yes. You Please, let me go. Let me go there. You didn't yeah. want to play. You didn't want to play catch in the in the backyard with the other guys down the street. You, you didn't miss some of those other Wait, kids. How'd you guess? <laughs> he just looked at me and knew that. Well, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> but then it gets complicated because you had this ideal home uh, with the repertory company in Cleveland, um, but your family moved to Los Angeles, and uh, yeah, that was the Spike Jones. Uh, uh, situation that we moved out there for him to be in Spike Jones Orchestra. And it took you a few years to sort of, you couldn't really find that same kind of, you know, classical theater there to work with. I couldn't regularly. find anything but radio. Right. And so did you feel disappointed? Were you a bit lost there until you started working with your father? Or? Um, I was a lot lost mm. and I did a lot of things in high school and I was very... Um, Naughty. I, I, I directed Tennessee Williams and, uh, you know, That's Lady of Larkspur Lotion. Not one of the big hits, that one. That's impressive. No. <laughs> uh, so, but you were still keeping your hand in showbiz. But then you basically, uh, you know, got a big break when your father said, hey, you know, why don't you come join me? And I think it was in Miami. Was it not? Where no, it was in L.A. It was in L.A. when you yeah. first started performing. And uh, I didn't understand Yiddish at all, but I learned a song, a very famous song uh, called Romania. And it had very fast. It was like a Danny Kaye number. Oh, uh, yes. I didn't understand one word of it. And I learned it. My aunt, you know, coached me. And I went on stage, never sang or danced in my life. And, oh my God, I was a hit. You knocked wow. him dead. I mean, you're such a good dancer because a couple years after that, you're discovered by Eddie Cantor, who has you come on to his show. And we took a look at that clip. It's actually out there, and it, it's, it's fascinating. It's embarrassing. Really? Why? Why it's is it just, embarrassing? I, I knew nothing. Well, you seem very fresh, but boy, are you light on your feet, man. You, for someone who didn't dance, you were dancing all over the place in that number. i rather say it's more like running. <laughs> well, it's very athletic, shall we say. No, it's dazzling in its way. I mean, uh, for somebody who professes to be, you know, so... You know, green at that point, it's a very professional routine. Uh, you seemed a little shy when he was introducing you. But once once you're on, it's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty amazing to watch even today. You, you actually did do a joke about your name there, too, in, in the beginning of oh, that. Yes, yes. I mean, was that ever hard to, to change your name? Did you ever look back at it because you were changing your name from Cats to be, you know... To be in the mainstream, 
that's what people did then. Yeah. It was sort yeah. of accepted that you would have to do that mm -hmm. in order to have a career. Yeah. At the end of that clip, he Which says... Which probably has some deeper implications of anti-Semitism. Well, yeah, yeah that's what we were getting at. I mean, that, that, that is the sad part, that your dad faced some of it. Here you are, 22, trying to get into this business, doing everything you can, some pressure probably from your mother, and here's a big opportunity, you know? And, and they called one day and they said, uh, you have to change your name because we're putting up a, a marquee. So uh, what are you going to call yourself? You can't be Joel Katz anymore. Hmm. And um, I was working with a writer, and he said, Olay, Joel Gray. And that hmm. was it. Wow. It had a ring. <laughs> well, it's great. It does balance the letters, obviously, <laughs> four and four. I mean, it's, it is. It's nice. It's a solid. It's a strong name. Yes. <laughs> At the end of that clip, though, he promises you, he says, we have producers in the house. And uh -huh. they, they've seen you before during the rehearsal, and they've seen you now. And he promises you that there's going to be a new Broadway show called Curtain Going Up. Right. And that if you want to be in it, they'd love to have you in the company. Right. Although I don't see it in your credits anywhere. Did that ever happen? Never happened. Hmm. So that was just a little bit of spin or something? Or? Spin. Yeah. Well, he was trying... Before there was that word. Yeah. Pre-spin, shall we say. I mean, was he trying to make star makers, this idea to almost legitimize himself? Well, he did that a lot. He did discover young talent mm -hmm. that he sort of specialized. Mm. Well, and then you went on to a pretty amazing nightclub career for several years for someone so In young. In misery the whole time. Well, that's, that's what's fascinating. I mean, here you would think a young kid, uh, you know, hanging out at the fancy nightclubs performing every night would be, you know, in hog heaven. But you really, that's not what you felt All you I wanted, wanted to, to do. All I wanted to be was in the theater mm. and at quiet at 7 o'clock, putting my makeup on, finding the truth of a character and telling the story with these other wonderful actors. It was like a family. Mm. And was there, you know, you, you spoke to, to me about this before when we talked, there was a real divide between uh, people in nightclub and, you know, oh, ex vaudeville. Yes. So you couldn't find a way into Broadway for several they years. Were, there was very, very strong feeling that if you weren't of the theater, if you were from nightclubs or movies even, mm. Broadway was very snippy about it. And I couldn't even get auditions. They even, even with all you. your fame, I mean, you know, you were yeah, a known commodity. Yes, I, I was sort of a commodity. But that almost worked against you, it would seem. The kind of a commodity. Right, yes. And then, of course, along came, you got a phone call. It's a very famous story, but we'd like to hear it again. You know, you were perhaps, you were fairly down about having a full Broadway career, and then you get a phone call from... Well, I had been just replacing people. Right. I had, like replaced four or five people on Broadway. I never had my own role. Mm. And so I was ready to quit. And then I got this call from Hal Prince. And I, was, I remember I was asleep. And he said, Jolie? I go, oh, Hal. He says, uh, what's the matter? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, you know, I'm just, I'm thinking of doing something else. He said, what do you, what do you mean? 
I've got this project, and I think there's a part in it for you. It's about, uh, it's a version of I Am A Camera, and um, we're going to be doing uh, a reading and listening to the score by Candor and Ebb next week, and we want you to come. No audition. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, that's about as good as it gets in an actor's career, especially when it turned out to be the role of a lifetime. Um, if we can switch over to the personal for a while, because at the same time, you were, you were very um, interested in having a family that was important to you. I think at one point you said, I needed to act, but I also needed just as much to have a family. Where did that impulse come from? And I think when I was very little, I was hooked on being a dad and being a husband and being a part of the fabric of the world as I saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Is this in reaction to, you know, you knew you were you had homosexual inclinations at an early age. Was this in reaction to that, or is it entirely separate? I think probably both. Yeah. Does it have anything to do with the idea of, because I've heard you mention this word several times, family, and the idea of what even your preconceptions of what a family was, what society says at that time is a family meant, you know, a father and a mother and, and, and children. I mean, we they weren't, uh, progressive enough to think that you could be a father and a father or mother and a mother. I mean, do you think that the family was so important to you at the Playhouse? Well, that's what a company is. It is a family and a, a non-judgmental, loving family as long as you, you know, were committed so you wanted that same kind of thing in your house to come home to. It was different in my yeah. house. They were, my, my, my parents had their own problems. And my father was working so hard and trying to make it. My mother was a, really a frustrated actor. Uh, you had to say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw pictures of her recently when she was 18. And she looked like Theda Vera. Oh, wow. It's not a bad look. <laughs> Although, no, I mean, it was pretty glamorous. Yeah. And I remember that my grandmother called her a vamp. Not in a flattering way, perhaps. In that time, right. Yeah. Because she was really taking all the spotlight. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and it, it was a funny sort of a joke in that she called her... The vampire, mm. <laughs> meaning a vamp, but but it ended up being a vampire. A predatory vamp. It's vampires aren't weren't fashionable then, I guess. Um, but once you married, you said that your your family life was really quite happy. I mean, oh, it, it's, it was... I always wanted, along with being an actor, to have children and a wife and a life. And it brought you great pleasure. I mean, there was never any, you know, you sort of recreated, you created a more happy family than perhaps, or a less complicated one in many ways. Probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was everything. And it still is, in a way. Ah, that's wonderful. I'm one of those people who can operate on a couple of levels comfortably. Mm-hmm. So, 
to return back to you know your fame, we're going between the we're going behind the stage and back onto the stage. Another interesting story about cabaret is that uh, you know here you had created the role in those days. You know, very few people who create Broadway roles would necessarily do the movie versions. Right. Um, and of course, this one did not. The movie role did not fall into your lap the way the stage role did. You, there was some trouble there, right? Yes. <laughs> trouble with Bob Fosse. Sleep. It was called Fosse Trouble. Uh, actually, I, I, I could see his point of view. He wanted to create something so different from the Broadway show. He wanted nothing to do with that except some of the bones. And he wanted to make it not a Broadway musical put on film. He wanted to make it a film. Right. And he did. And he was right. I mean, uh, they, his choices were right. But just the whole idea of nobody from that form. Yeah, you were all sort of tossed aside as being... Yeah, you know, from Broadway. Yeah, part of something I don't want anything to do with. I'm creating my own right. work of art here. However, um, in the end, obviously, you did end up in the movie. So what? how did that transpire? I think, you know, it's, it's all conjecture, but my, my feeling is that maybe somewhere in his mind, he thought that if nobody could be found, that he could play the MC. Because <laughs> oh, he, he was a very... Very excellent performer before he was a choreographer. Of course, oh, yes. wow. So you think he was saving it for himself? Could be. Wow. But in the end, you actually were the one who ended well, up with the role. Well, in the end, he came in six weeks before the shoot began in Munich. And there were all the Broadway biggies uh, who were making their first big movie. And... Uh, he came in and said to this entire room of suits, <laughs> gentlemen, this is the day of reckoning. It's either Joel Gray or me. Hmm. And uh, Marty Baum, God bless him, was the producer. He said, then it's Joel Gray. That's wow. never happened. Yeah, I, that's a one once in a showbiz lifetime story, or once in showbiz story. Um, so, and went, he made my life miserable for the next six months. He's known for making people's lives miserable, but uh, I, I tried to the, do it back to him, but it wasn't as good. So he was never happy with what you did. No, no, no. I think he was. I think he was, but. He wasn't going to let me he, know. He didn't want you to know it, yeah. Right, and I think he always thought, thought it to himself, I could have done that. <laughs> well, it's tough to work under those conditions, but, of course, it must have been exciting to be working uh, alongside Liza Minnelli. I mean, here we, was somebody who had some things in common with you. She grew up in a showbiz family, so was there an immediate connection on that level? Immediate. We became... Blood, sister, brother. 
Yeah, there's a lot of chemistry that you had together. I, I saw a little medley of the two of you, and there is. I mean, there's a lot of electricity. I mean, it just seemed that there was so much chemistry. What was it like working with her? Because she has a reputation, you know, that precedes her. Was she easy? Was it fun? Perfect. Hmm. Hilarious. She's so funny hmm. and loving and... Um, we were both, you know, we were theater animals and movie animals and uh, animals. <laughs> and it sounds like, and it, you, as you said, you play off each other. There's this incredible energy in those numbers that jumps off the screen, which is one reason why that movie still is one of the classics of, you know, really of all time, classic movie musical of all time, yeah. to be sure. Could be. Um so let's return again to, to backstage. Um, you were quite candid in your recent book, uh, Master of Ceremonies, about you know, your very complicated relationship with your you know, sexuality over the years. Um, you didn't actually come out as a gay man until just a few years ago. Um, do you want to give us a little bit about the history of your evolving feelings, you know, how hard it was when you were starting out? and how you came to the decision finally to... Do you know what life was like in the 40s and 50s for a young person in terms of gay life? I've only read, but... It was hideous, mm. terrifying, shocking. It's the last thing you wanted to be. You were, you were absolutely hunted is the right word. Yeah, of course, rounded up, you know, when they when they could raid a bar, that yeah. kind of thing. So it it I think along with the sensibility of at the same time of antisemitism and the Holocaust and this sort of Holocaust of gay people at the same time, uh, I, I had enough. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It's I, I'd say I had my fill. Yeah. And I couldn't understand it. And I could tell nobody. And so I, and luckily, I love women. And uh, I met, fell in love with this wonderful woman. And we were married for 24 years. Had two children. Three, actually. One died. Oh, um, yes. Anyway, that was, that was a gift. Mm -hmm. And eventually, of course, you decided, uh, you know, after the marriage was over. Yes. You know, you became more at home and, you know, social attitudes gradually evolved. But by that time, I was pretty battered mm. about it. Of course. All those years of, you know, tamping it down and dealing with the fear that you might be exposed to, I assume. Horrible. Those, those, those were the days of Confidential magazine. Mm. Now we have TMZ, <laughs> but it's not quite the issue it once was. TMZ? Oh, TMZ <laughs> is one of these. Uh, sounds like some sort of disease that I probably have. No, it's a it's a scandal. Shall web, we not website. give them uh, advertising? Yeah. Well, I think they're doing okay, unfortunately. Um, you've spoken about you alluded to your family, and of course. Jennifer has become, you know, 
a star in her own right. Absolutely. Um, a uh, household name. Yes. A, a generation knows her probably then yes. better than they know you. Absolutely. Uh, which is, you know, entirely natural. Um, so tell us about how she evolved into a performer. Was it something you expected? What happened? What was her journey like? Well, she was always, you know, loving the theater and wanting to go with me all the time. And uh, that was great fun. We were very tight. And, um, but I thought that I should have had a better, a better education. And I didn't go to college. I wanted to. And so I thought, she's got the opportunity here. And she didn't want to. And she just wanted to go get on the stage. And so she knew what she wanted. And uh, once I saw her on the screen in her first movie, I went by myself to the Sutton Theater on 57th Street to a matinee to see this movie. And in the dark, I saw her. She had a really good scene. And she was excellent. And I thought to myself, she can do this. And at that point, it was probably too late to do the fatherly, do you know how hard this is oh, going I'm, to be? Oh, are you kidding? Poor thing. Yeah, she heard that plenty. Yeah. Well, she says, imagine. actually, that um, early on, you, the only lessons you would let her take were dance lessons. And then she had to go to school. I mean, I, I heard her say that in an interview. That's true. Uh, and that you wouldn't let her have the acting. Was that a way of sort of kind of getting her away well, from that or dissuading her? I mean, she had to almost, you know, get it on her own. I think she did in a way because I really thought she needed that thing that I needed. But that's not necessarily true. Well, you know. Each performer has their own path, psychic and otherwise, to, uh, you know, a career. Um, and here she was famous like you at a fairly young age, because Dirty Dancing became this huge phenomenon, as you know. Uh, did you have any advice to give her about, you know, dealing with the pressure of... No, she that? seemed to know what she was up against and mm -hmm. doing, and she was always very ahead of her age. Yes, precocious in terms of, you know, being able to deal with the pressure and not getting overwhelmed the way so many young stars do. That's that's impressive. Probably because she'd been around it for... She had. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting because she's very composed. If you see her on some of those early interviews with Johnny Carson, she's joking with him that her heart is beating out of her chest, but she actually seems absolutely composed. Do you think coming from, you know, did you kind of gain that from your father as well, being a child of song, that when you have that performance kind of in your bones, in your blood, that it is easier to kind of be settled and be confident? And I don't know the answer to that exactly, but I know being a musician and being part of an orchestra where the focus is not on you but on the whole, is different from being a soloist. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he even liked being out in front, my dad. I think he would rather have been sitting down playing music with his friends. It's an entirely different 
personality as a performer. That's interesting. And yet he had to do both, ultimately. And he was successful at both. Yes, he got pushed into the performing thing. It was very odd. Yeah. Now, when you had this famous daughter and, you know, you're dealing with the, the fact that, you know, maybe you were thinking of coming out, obviously, did you... It was a family thing first, I assume, you know. Was it known among your family and friends long before you came out? I think it was to People magazine or a no? No. Mm. I mean, my, my close friends. Mm-hmm. But I didn't... Uh, I wouldn't think from where I came and from the darkness of those early years, which were so... What's the word? Devastating. Uh, why would I do that? Hmm. Hmm. So when what, what was the turning point exactly? Well, I was I was a, a free man, and uh, I became very. I had always had the gay friends my whole life. And I thought that it was time to to not be not. Mm -hmm. That I had to be really honest because too much was happening in the world. Yes, and you had appeared in The Normal Heart. That really made a big impact on me. Mm -hmm. And... um, I think in a way, I sort of came out doing that part to, for myself. Right. Larry Kramer's play. Yeah. Um, which you recently co-directed a revival of that was much acclaimed. Uh, it was amazing how well that play, uh, I mean, retained its power, its emotional power. Um, revisiting it, was that uh, exciting, difficult? For you, I mean, exciting, yeah, exciting because I believed that it was still a story very worth telling because it was from such a long time ago and it was from a time when people were so hysterical, mm-hmm. they weren't dealing with it as a theater piece, they were dealing with it as a, a political nightmare. Yeah, I mean, they were living what was happening on stage in their lives. That's what was right. so amazing about that play, and yet it still had so much resonance all these years later. Um, I mean, looking back on your career, which has covered so many different, it's had so many different phases, um, you know, there's the classic question, well, when they remember me, what do, they, what do you want to be remembered for? I mean, of course, people will remember the MC, but, you know, as a man, as a performer... What do you want people to know most about you in the in the years to come? That I loved my children, and I loved my wife, and I loved the theater, and I love art, and I'm always, always hoping that something's going to be magnificent. Well, that's the best way to look at everything in life, I think. <laughs> Whether it's art or, you know, the future or, you know, even a rainy day as we are enjoying one today. Um, 
I think that's. I think we've covered the territory. I think we have. I have think, we? Well, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think someone who has a seventy-year career too really has seen all sides of it. I mean, when you when you think of you know Eddie Cantor, and I mean, here's a guy in, in the twenties who performed in blackface. I mean, and there you are performing with him. And then just the differences in performances and how things change and how culture affects uh, the, the work that you did. I, I was watching some George M. And obviously you did that in the 70s. But they are sort of making it jazzy through the whole thing. They're trying to make it present for the 70s. And Oh, you're talking about the uh, the TV version. It, yeah, I guess I, that's the one I saw. And I just want, I mean, you have to be so flexible as an actor to go with where they want to do it. And you've done that for 70 years, and it keeps changing. I mean, you're, you know, is that interesting to look back? Yeah. Curious? <laughs> yes, of course. I mean, shows evolve with time. That's why we are continue to revive them, as with Normal Heart, well, and, of course, Chicago. Which and then the Cherry Orchard. That was another... I, I played Platonov. Hmm. At Williamstown. That's one that not many people know, in fact. As a matter of fact, it was what the one that Kate Blanchett yes. did a new version yes. of. Yes, no longer called Patonov. No. Um, but it was a great experience. And that was more like the Cleveland Playhouse. Ah. Of what I thought I was going to be doing. So you finally did get back to the, <laughs> to the classic. And... With the cherry orchard, the same. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. Fierce. Yes, a great role. Great. All Chekhov roles are kind of great roles when you think Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, well. We're finished. Well, we, I think as we say goodbye, we'd like to hear a little of Mr. Grace Singh, yes? Why not? Uh, not live, don't worry. After <laughs> this hour, you're still calling me Mr.? No, I'm sorry, Joel. Okay, I've, good. <laughs> Jolie, maybe. No, no, never. <laughs> he, oh, I thought how Prince called you Jolie. He's is, is the he only the one. one? Uh, okay. Oh, you I remember. won't try it again. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I'm giving him an award All on right. Monday night. The oh, that's nice. Terrific. Yeah. Ah, well, well deserved. So as we say goodbye, we will listen to you saying welcome. <laughs> All right, Joel, thank you so much for joining us here at Children of Song. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. We look forward to seeing what you do next because you have so many different talents. Uh, thanks again. Thanks. Next week, we'll head back to country music. Crystal Keith stops by to talk about growing up with her famous father, the singer-songwriter and record producer, Toby Keith. That's right, courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue. It's a candid look back for an artist who's stepping out of her daddy's shadow and quickly making a name for herself, only on Children of Song, the podcast everyone's talking about. Till next time, I'm Brad Newman. Thanks for listening.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.